Oh, okay. Hang on, hang on. Before we start, hang on. <laughs> hang on, hang this on. This always happens. Oh, no, you guys are going to geek out about guitars. Hey, this always happens. Before we start, there's one guitar. <laughs> wow. 335? This is a... <laughs> Chris is dying inside. I love this. 1960 ES330. Get the fuck out of here. Look at this thing. That's <laughs> fucking epic. <laughs> Yeah. All right. I have to oh. show you the fave from my collection. Hang on. I got to take off the headphones for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ooh. What? What is? Um, that's a bit tasty. It's the history of this guitar that's kind of badass. Which is, it was a gift for my fiftieth birthday, which I spent in London. We we um, I was shooting. I guess we were doing. Must have been doing Dark Knight Rises at the time. Yeah. And Hans Zimmer gave me this guitar as a 50th birthday present. Wow. And we'd taken over a pub in um, like Shoreditch area uh, for the night. And all my friends who play music in London came out and we, we had a, you know, like a eight hour jam session and, and party there. And Hans gave this to me. And then like, I don't know, a couple of years later, like two years later or something, I got contacted by Paul McCartney to do a, to do a shoot with him. No way. For me to shoot with him directing. And it was just a music clip that he wanted to do. Hmm. And so I brought this guitar along and I got him to sign it. Hey, hey there it is. Isn't that great? Okay, yeah. Alan, you've been you've been one up. Damn it. I know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. It's not a competition, it's just an exhibition. <laughs> That's incredible. Welcome to Candela. I'm Christopher Hooten. On today's show, my co-host Alan Schaller and I are joined by director of photography Wally Fister. Wally is best known for his work with director Christopher Nolan, the pair collaborating on seven movies, Memento, Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, and The Dark Knight Rises. Wally has been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography four times, winning it in 2010 for Inception. He made his directorial debut in 2014 with Transcendence, which starred Johnny Depp, Morgan Freeman, and Killian Murphy. We hope you enjoy our chat, Come say hi on our Instagram, which is at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A Podcast. Peace. Wally Fister, welcome to Candela. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Chris and Alan. I appreciate it. Good stuff. Pleasure's results. So with the... The cinematographers we've had on the show so far, a lot of them, some of them have come through, you know, as camera assistants, as, you know, DPing small films. I understand that you had a little bit of a, a different route in and that you were you were a newsman. Yeah. You were out there covering the kind of uh, Washington station, kind of covering Congress and doing the kind of news pieces. So what was uh, what was that like? I was. It was it was interesting. I started at a really young age, you know, at about 18 years old. I, I got a job at a television station um, as a production assistant. And um, I kind of uh, grabbed onto the camera pretty quickly. I actually learned the soundboard first because um, I was playing music at the time, but picked up a, a camera. And at the time they had these kind of Panasonic video cameras. They just switched over from film to video. I don't mean to humiliate myself, but it was 1980 when I started this TV <laughs> station. And um, uh, so I learned the cameras and I, I kind of, um, I taught myself and to the people at the TV station, I was just an 18 year old punk. So they were like, uh, you know, not eager to make me a cameraman, but I, so I was, I was determined 
to impress them enough so that they would give me a, um, a promotion from, uh, uh, from being a PA to a cameraman. Um, and uh, they eventually did. And they put me on, I was on the studio camera on the 6 and 11 news. So just in the studio and we used to get stoned and do the 6 and 11 news because there wasn't a lot to do. You just stand behind the camera. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you weren't you weren't in the crew that was like waiting outside the courthouse. You were you were in the studio. Later on, I was later on. I was. And one of the first things. So I then as uh, became a news cameraman after that and moved to Washington, D.C. And actually what my first year uh, as a news cameraman in D.C., the the trials for John Hinckley were still going on. And John Hinckley was the one who uh, attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan. Um, and, uh, and so those were standing outside of a courtroom. Um, and that same, uh, that same time period, uh, one of my earliest sort of experiences in Washington, I guess I was about 20 at this point, uh, but was a plane crash in Washington, DC, a horrific, uh, uh, situation where a, a 737, uh, took off from national airport in Washington and had ice on the wings, crashed into a bridge, and then into the water. Um, and I think like 130 people were uh, were killed. But um, this man managed to rescue all these people. So uh, I was at that at that time a sound man, uh, but we were some of the first on the scene. So I really did get a crazy baptism at a young age <laughs> um, in the news business. Uh, we covered that, uh, and then you know I became a cameraman for that company and. Uh, and did news for I guess about six or seven years before getting into documentaries. Mm. Does um does the term file and feed does that ring any bells with you? File and feed. Well, what we used to do was we used to um, the the networks all had bureaus in Washington, so we would actually sometimes we were kind of such autonomous little units that we would it was just a cameraman and a soundman, um, and we were also editors, so we would shoot a news story, um, edit it ourselves, and then have to jump in the car and drive it to the network um, office so that they could put up on the satellite. So that was the feed. So we actually delivered the tape by hand because <laughs> we didn't have a, because the company I worked for didn't have a, have a connection with the networks, like a link to the network. So we'd have to deliver it by hand and yeah. then they would put it up on their satellite feed for their affiliates. Um, well, Chris, Chris came. Well, Chris started in in news as well. Why do you know that? Yeah, but I was never in. I was never in broadcast news. It was always print mm -hmm. or online, so I never really saw that side of it. But um, mm -hmm. it made me think of. This is quite an esoteric reference, but I don't know if you've ever read. Uh, David Foster Wallace once wrote this article about uh, John McCain's failed presidential bid. Oh, interesting. And uh, yeah, he just he just follows him around. But as much as he talks about the politics, he mostly spends most of the time just talking about the local news cameramen wow. and just kind of getting into their world and all of like their parlance and Love just it. them basically standing outside like these places smoking and just waiting to like shoot their 10, 10 seconds of coming in and out footage. And it's like, I think you'd yeah. get a kick out of it. I'll have to send it to you. Uh, that sounds fantastic. I'd love to check that out. It, you know, the, the, the phrase we used to use was hurry up and wait. Um, and you, yeah. you, you'd have to rush to get to this event and then you sit there and wait. And then frankly, and, and, and in the situation of this, what they called Hinkley beach, which was waiting at the side of the courthouse for this, you know, would be assassin to come out from his day. You'd be sitting there with your camera powered down and, um, and completely at ease, sitting around smoking, talking, 
you know, sun tanning. <laughs> and then, uh, and then in a, in an instant, you'd have to power up your camera. You'd see that they, all, they wouldn't give you any warning and the door would open up and out would come, you know, lawyers. And this, this would happen on, at photo opportunities as well at the white house and, uh, et cetera. But so in an instant, you'd have to jump to power up your camera, be ready and start rolling. So your batteries had to be set. So, so yeah, that was the, the hurry up and wait situation. I but, suppose, I suppose that's a good kind of, uh, background to have for for doing films like feature films because the low waiting <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was a great background i mean obviously you know people don't understand the comparisons but um in my you know career as a cinematographer uh i ended up shooting an awful lot of handheld uh camera and you know and the one that comes to mind particularly was the prestige where Chris i was gonna and I, say that yeah, yeah. i i re rewatched that a couple of nights ago mm, and i didn't yeah. imagine it being the kind of film that would have a lot of handheld in it but then mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff where you're on the stage i'm like yeah he's actually getting yeah. in close and just kind of wondering yeah i mean we had we had started you know with chris it was my i guess it was my fourth film with him it was memento insomnia batman begins yes yeah, so it was our fourth film together and and at that point um we had done a lot of handheld in every film um you know particularly in memento and um, and Chris loved it. He loved the spirit of it. He loved the way it looked. He loved uh, uh, the fact that it was a very efficient way to shoot. Um, so for the prestige, um, you know, he came to me and said, look, I really want to do, you know, most or all of this film handheld. And um, to me, uh, you know, it felt like a cool idea because it was sort of contrasting the cliche uh, period piece and, <laughs> and kind of, you know, creating something that I felt uh, considering it took place turn of the century, um, was going to be a fresh approach. Mm. Uh, so we did end up shooting. I, I don't, it's, it's interesting. There are a few shots on dollies, et cetera, and cranes in it, but I, I think we probably shot, I would say at least 80% of that movie handheld. Good workout. Uh, yeah, it was a good, yeah, my, I had, <laughs> I had some back trouble for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before obviously we'll get deep into a lot of your work with Chris mm -hmm. Nolan, but um, yeah. back in your back in your news days, yeah. am I right in thinking you had a quite a incredible chance meeting with Robert Altman that helped things, right? Yeah, that's that was sort of yeah. So uh, at the time, I was working mostly in documentaries. I was doing some work uh, for a wonderful series on PBS here called Frontline. Uh, which, you know, continues to have fantastic documentaries. And at the time, they're doing very political documentaries, et cetera. And, um, and so I got to know all the, and I became one of the top documentary cameramen in Washington at the time at whatever, 27 years old. And uh, so I was, uh, I was very well known in that community. And Robert Altman and his team came to town and they were doing a fictional series for HBO that was called Tanner 88. Um, and I had been a huge Altman fan my entire life. And I'd also wanted to get into dramatic work my entire life as well. Uh, but I was a real film buff. So I was, I was really into these kinds of directors with the ones they call the Mavericks, Robert Altman, Arthur Penn, Hal Ashby, um, John Schlesinger, you know, some of these fantastic directors from the 70s, which, by the way, I'm starting to revisit all these films again we watched harold and maude the other night mm, and last great. night i watched a wonderful arthur penn movie called little big man which was one of uh dustin hoffman's first films 
Highly recommend that if you've never seen okay, it. Okay, yeah, I've not seen that one. I'll check it out. Yeah, same. Yeah, I really, really recommend that. And those those films become a real slice of that uh, of that era too. Still, you know, Vietnam was still going on. There was uh, there was a lot of pondering, <laughs> which I think there'll be, you know, uh, in this era as well. Um, but so uh, Robert Altman's films fit into that uh, that category. You know, films like Mash and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Nashville. Um, they're really incredible. So I'd been a huge, huge Robert Altman fan. Um, and I got this call from this post-production company that said, Hey, Robert Altman is in town and they're looking for, you know, a guy to play a news cameraman in this, in this piece, Tanner 88. And, um, I was like, really? And, uh, and he said, yeah, but they, they started to think that they don't want to cast an actor, that they want a real cameraman. And we thought of you. And I was like, fantastic and so i got a call back it was like a proper callback and i showed up at the callback with a beta cam and uh uh you know in hand and he thought that was hilarious um he's like well i guess you're a real cameraman and i and i did an interview with him and his producer scotty bushnell both of whom uh have passed now and they uh they ended up hiring me and uh and the first week of filming they said you know they decided okay well we're, you're gonna play this cameraman this news cameraman uh one of the characters is a is a reporter and you're gonna play the cameraman uh but we're also gonna have you roll your camera so it was a it was this uh apartheid protest in washington dc that we'd staged and uh and i put the camera on my shoulder and rolled a bunch of footage and then i had a couple of lines with the characters. It, Pamela Reed was one of the uh, the actors. Michael Murphy was the star. He was playing Tanner, who was running for president. Uh, so anyway, to make a long story longer, um, I, um, I shot that day and we went back for dailies and Altman kind of said to me the next day, he said, well, look, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. The uh, the bad news is you're a terrible actor. <laughs> he said, the good news is we really loved your footage. And, you know, it's exactly the kind of style and the, and the spirit in which we're doing this. So we want to keep you with us. Um, so I, I stuck with that project. And it was 1988. And um, they took me along to L.A. and Detroit and then finally to the Democratic Convention in Atlanta, um, where this actor, Michael Murphy, was mingling with actual presidential candidates. And so you had, um, I believe it was Mike Dukakis was running for president that year. Uh, Jesse Jackson was also running for president. So it was all these sort of heavy political heavy hitters that they incorporated into this documentary style television show. So anyway, that really gave me the bug. That same year I applied to, uh, uh, to go to AFI, American Film Institute, got in, and I just uh, walked away from documentaries and news forever at that point that's wild there can't be too many people who uh move from <laughs> the acting role gives them a gig as camera operator it's pretty unusual true and and failing as an actor you know propelled my career as a as a cameraman <laughs> what um you said that you became known on the in the scene uh, you know by the age of 27 ish um mm, yeah. what do you do you know what it was that um that set you apart from other people or, or, or that gave you a, an edge over people for getting chosen for things? Was it to do with the quality of the compositions you were making or was it the, the nature of the material or your integrity or, or a mixture of everything? It, you know, it took me years to, to figure this out. And then finally reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, 
it uh, you know it went off like a light bulb <laughs> to me that that what what a lot of my success could be attributed to was the amount of experience and the amount of time I had behind it. So I don't know how many, you know, of your listeners are familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers, but it's a, it's an incredible sort of explanation of expertise and how you get good and simply put it's 10,000 hours. And once you've you've gotten to a skill level uh, from practicing that skill for 10,000 hours, then you become somewhat of an expert in it. And in the book, he, he specifically talks about a hockey team in Canada where the team that was propelled to the top was, um, and these were youth, a youth team, uh, had started one year before the other ones. So they had just that one year more. And so they're so much better, yet they were the same age as the other team. So nobody really figured that out. They just thought it was an all-star team. They yeah. also, he also talked about the Beatles and how the Beatles were playing eight nights a week <laughs> in, uh, in Hamburg. And, uh, and, and Paul McCartney talks about that as well. You know, they were, they had so much more experience than any other musicians because they were playing in a strip club eight hours a day, seven days a week, mm. and got this level of experience and this tightness together that nobody else had. Yeah. So in my case, I started again at 18 years old. I was working at this TV station. I picked up a camera at 18 years old, a professional camera. And by 19 years old, I was a professional cameraman. So by 27 years old, I had certainly reached 10,000 hours. So I might have been young, but by skipping over university and by going immediately behind a camera, I had this great experience. And that continued really for another 20 years. <laughs> mm. I like you as a seasoned pro at 27. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now, you know, I'm a young man in my 50s, but I've been behind a camera for 40 years. Mm. You know, that shocks the hell out of me when I say it. And, you know, uh, I won't say it in front of my young girlfriend, but it's uh, kind of a <laughs> it's kind of an amazing thing when you think about it. But all that experience does build uh, and and lead to you know having a greater skill level. So I don't think it's any kind of special talent that I have. <laughs> um, you have to have some taste, but I think no, I, I, think, I, th I think there is yeah, there is a talent element to it for sure. Mm -hmm. I think because uh, mm -hmm. it's interesting. I think seeing a lot of. Uh, people like photographers uh, and musicians and and directors. A lot of them seem to um, have a moment of brilliance and then kind mm. of fizzle out. But it seems yeah. like looking yeah. at your filmography, you're kind of just like have been ramping in terms mm -hmm. of achievements as it goes along, yeah. which is which is hard to um, you know. It doesn't always happen for people. Yeah. Well, though, yeah. Although at the same time, Al, it makes me think of what when we were talking to Matt Stewart on the podcast. I think we were we were saying there that like talent's great, but really like effort and putting in the hours is probably oh yeah, of course, of course, essential. Some way. essential. Yeah. And, and there yeah. are great great examples of that too. You know, if you look at like Steph Curry, uh, who's you know an incredible uh, NBA basketball player um, here, you know, uh, he will be the first one to tell you that. You know, he just worked harder than all the other players. Mm -hmm. That there are players that inherently he felt had had more talent, had more, uh, had greater skills. Um, but he was the guy that showed up an hour before practice started, and he was the guy that, you know, hung out an hour after practice was over, um, yeah. and that propelled him to the level he's at now as an NBA player. So, um, so it really is that. But I agree. You know, at a certain level, 
you know, to truly be an outlier, you do have to have, you know, some level of talent and some point of view. And I think that that came probably in my career a bit more with, uh, with the lighting and with the collaboration with uh, a director. And as you said, that you know, the notion of my career rising, you know, we had a perfect band. You know, that was you know a time period where we were, we had a fantastic collaboration. Myself and Christopher Nolan, and um, our production designer Nathan Crowley, and and just all these other great collaborators that Nolan had put together. And we built this, you know, incredible machine to 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 bring his vision to you know to the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, when you're in a great collaboration like that, and and it's very easy to to compare that to being in a band and the other musicians in the band, um, then you're you know you're playing jazz, man, <laughs> and, you're, yeah. and you're 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 taking it to the highest level, um, and that's certainly so, what that yeah. collaboration was like. So thinking about that that perfect band that you formed, how did the band, yeah, how did the band form? What was the your first meeting with Chris and where did it take place and what was the, how did you guys become to think we want to work together? Yeah, I, I, I had done a, a low budget. I'd been kind of hacking around in low budget for a long time. Another one of those periods where I was building up experience at the time it felt, you know, uh, I was restless, but but really I was building up experience between like the early 90s and when I met Chris Nolan in 1999. Um, but so somewhere along, and I'd, I'd worked, done some really good work as a camera operator for, for a wonderful friend and DP named Faden Papa Michael, um, who did Ford versus Ferrari last year. Mm. Um, but Faden, you know, continues to be a dear friend of mine. And, and at that time, I, you know, he gave me one of my first breaks. He and Janusz Kaminski gave me very early breaks in the business. And so I'd, I'd worked, you know, done some second unit for Faden. Um, I worked as, as his camera operator on a couple of bigger films, but of course I wanted, you know, I had my eyes on the prize and wanted to DP my own work. Um, and so, uh, in, uh, in, I think 97 or 98, I took a, uh, a low budget movie at great cost because they weren't, they were hardly paying anything and the budget was $300,000 and that's in 1998. So, um, it was very, very low budget movie, uh, an independent film. And we filmed that in Montana in the snow. Um, the director's name was Ron Judkins, who was actually Steven Spielberg's sound mixer at the time and had done a ton of pictures with Spielberg, and I think continues to. So he had sort of a little bit of notoriety. <laughs> and, um, and so we made this film, and it went to Sundance that year. And I, um, I met Chris uh, at that. He, he had his first film following at Slamdance, and so we briefly met because we were rep by the same company. I think we were both also at yeah we were both at at the same um, agency. And then that passed, and and it was about a year later um, that I had gotten a lot of heat for the film it was called The High Line uh, that was at Sundance. And Chris was looking for a DP for Memento. I I think I was like the fifth choice or something. <laughs> and a lot a lot of guys that, that he had met with weren't available or, or were busy whatever. Um, but I was working on a, another low budget film at the time and got the call for this. They, and they sent the script out and of course nobody knew who Chris was and sent the script out. And I read the script and I was like, this is fucking crazy. Mm. And thought it was an amazing, you know, um, uh, script. I didn't quite understand everything. Um, but knew something really special. Yeah. It blew my mind the other night watching yeah. that for the first time. I was just like, <laughs> Oh, you watched it for the first time recently. Yeah. 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 Pretty, yeah. Incredible. Like, like, pretty incredible. And to think that, you know, 
and I can't even remember how old Chris was at the time. It was 1999, so 21 years ago. So yeah, Chris was in his early 20s. So yeah, it's amazing that that film got even made. Really, you know, Chris wasn't it bringing is. like a big name yeah. to the table at that point. The something mm-hmm. so unorthodox and like a nonlinear yeah. kind of narrative like that. It's cool that it actually happened. <laughs> and you can do that if the budget is small enough, you know. And you could in the past. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it works anymore. Um, but so anyway, we so we you know he hired me for that film, and and, and I remember at least one of the DPs that they had actually offered the film to was Peter Deming, um, and Peter. He worked with Sam Raimi for years and years, and then he also did um, work with David Lynch um, on a lot of movies. And Peter's a great, great guy and a great DP. He also worked with Wes Craven. And at that time, he had just made a deal to do Scream. I don't know if it was the first Scream or the second Scream horror movie with Wes Craven, and he had to pass on Memento. And he turned it down. Hmm. Um, so who knows? Peter, you know, we always joke that Peter might have had this, you know, 15, 20 year career with with Chris had it had he been available and not done Scream. <laughs> it's funny <laughs> yeah. how life goes, doesn't it? How it, it really is funny. So it's there quite is, trippy when you think about it, how many it, things it have to fall into place for, that, for they do. There's there, you know, there's there's luck, there's serendipity, there's talent, there's you know, it really is a it really is a a, a cocktail of, of a lot of different elements and Mm. you know i was definitely the fortunate one but i also knew that it was something special so i put a lot into it and and it was important to me to to do something interesting and and then develop this you know this uh relationship collaboration friendship with chris that that really you know uh to to go back to what you're saying about this art just built and built and built and even Mm. by our second movie insomnia we were exploring new territory and doing really cool interesting stuff and then came Batman Begins, then The Prestige, then Dark Knight, then Inception, then Dark Knight Rises. Mm. Inception Inception seemed like a crazy ambitious project. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know, we, we were prepared for it because of, you know, doing The Dark Knight and, and even Batman Begins. Um, so yeah, we, we, I think at that point, again, everything happens, you know, it's, it's this build and everything's happening in the right order and the right time. So we're, we're kind of, we're kind of set for it. And Chris always raised the bar, you know, he always challenged himself and challenged everybody around him. Yeah. And I guess that, um, the friendship that you guys formed is just like, is as, as important as anything, because, you know, when you, the production time on a, a feature film is so long. You're going to spend a lot of time with this person and to be able to get on with them and trust them and all of that stuff is mm-hmm. super, just as important as, you know, their eye and for a shot in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And we had a really close friendship and, 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 you know, he was a very, he's a very loyal uh, person. So he was really took care of us, you know, myself and, and his editor and his production designer. And, uh, and, and really that, that makes you feel safe and, and puts you in a, uh, and makes you feel proud of the work that you're doing as well and, and sort of, you know, pushes you to do to do your best. And mm. I think in, in that regard, Chris was a fantastic, you know, leader as well. Um, but yeah, very and, very and a very good friend those years. Um, I've got a question about Inception. Mm-hmm. We we spoke with uh, Jeff Cronenworth about his work mm-hmm. on on Fight Club and how there were some, you know, scenes in that that hadn't really been attempted before. Um, and the difficulties of that and, and the kind of the beginning of VFX and how that mm. intersected with the real footage. Um, obviously, with Inception, there's so much incredible CGI. Yeah. How, how involved do you get with, with the VFX team 
because obviously you're shooting like oh, I'm thinking that scene uh, on on the street in Paris where he's teaching yeah. uh, about how for, to build the- for listeners is that the one where where the the world kind of like turns on a hinge right and the the, the yeah. street like folds up on itself yeah, yeah. the yeah. street folds over yeah. yeah so so you're obviously shooting that and then at what mm-hmm. point does does do the VFX people come in and take over and and are you sitting there with them talking it through and that was that was one of the first that was the first week of shooting as well. It was in Paris and and it was intentionally in the first week of shooting because the visual effects guys basically told Chris, look, the more time you give us with this, the better it'll be. And so it came into the first week of shooting. So I think they literally had eight months before the, you know, before the cut was had to be completed to be working on that shot. And so it was a very clever uh you know consideration on both chris's part and on their part um but to answer your question alan about you know my involvement look it depends half that movie the the movie was really it's interesting because a lot of people uh at the time were like oh it's a visual effects movie there's all these wild visual effects there there's so much that's not there's so much that's in camera and that was kind of chris's Mm. philosophy and i believe continues to be his philosophy Mm. to try to get it in camera and when you can't get it in camera, you know, uh, work with visual effects to to achieve sort of what's needed for the vision. And that, um, uh, in a situation like that, it is purely, you know, a visual effect shot with natural elements. So in those cases, so generally it was Chris and myself on the, on the point with the camera, getting the material, then visual effects would do the work on it. In the case of those scenes and a lot of these scenes in Inception, there were very, very, you know, defined visual effects sequences, and that was one of them. So really, the visual effects folks take the lead on that. I mean, we're going to shoot the scene, and and you know, I'm gonna we're going to do it at the time of day, you know, that we think is is looks where it looks great, and uh, Chris is going to direct the actors' performances um, with no regard to the visual effects, but we're serving the visual effects folks in terms of what they need to be able to accomplish this effect. So everything's kind of mapped out by them um, technically in advance. It's storyboarded, it's, it's kind of figured out. It's, we look at the location and, and figure out what elements on location. You know, one of the interesting ones is the cafe scene, you know, where everything explodes. Mm. Um, because once you get the initial shot that we shot with slow motion cameras, ultra slow motion cameras, then we had to pick up a bunch of elements, but of course the sun is always changing. So as, as you know, the day goes on and you're picking up little elements for them to use, the light is changing. So the visual effects guys have to do a lot more. We're not able to give them an element that's, you know, completely perfect for a uh, perfect match. Um, but so, so there's, there's, it's really is a, an enormous collaborative effort. And Chris is an incredibly intelligent guy and, and kind of knows what they need as we're going along. Um, and won't let anybody talk him into getting something, you know, wasting his time on, on something that's unnecessary. So what kind of, what sort of things might they change? If you, you go in and you're like, this is how I would shoot this street scene. This is what I, how I would want to light it, how I would want to move the camera. What, what kind of things might the VFX team be like, that's not going to work for us. We actually need it to be like this in order for us to <laughs> turn the world on itself. Well, well, first up, Chris would never let them do that. He would never give them that kind of power. <laughs> he basically makes them sort of follow his lead because he doesn't want the, you know, uh, the cart leading the horse. And, and, right. and so in that case, you know, really he kind of, you know, said we're shooting all, a lot of this stuff handheld. So we're doing a walk and talk scene with, you know, Ellen Page and DiCaprio on a street 
Um, and we would always do a scene like that handheld normally. So Chris was like, well, I want to be able to do this handheld. So are you guys able to do the visual effects handheld? And uh, at that time, it was probably a little tougher than it is now. You know, it's over 10 years ago. Um, but of course they could do that. And so they got all the tracking markers they needed to. They did all the things that, you know, would that have been easier if we did it on a, you know, repeatable head or some kind of motion control device, or at the very least, a static camera or a dolly, something where they don't, they're not dealing with all that movement from the handheld camera. Yes, that would have been easier for them, but Chris is not there to make it easy for them. <laughs> you know, he's there to, to, to have them, yeah. you know, stay within the, the, you know, the filmmakers circle to achieve that. Not, not, mm. you know, again, not to guide the, interesting yeah and i guess chris is someone who who knows what he wants as well we had um mm -hmm. dan sakheim on the uh show recently who's directed a big you know big tv director and he was talking about mm -hmm. some of the obviously this is directing rather than dping sure. he yeah. was talking yeah. about um directing some episodes of game of thrones and like mm -hmm. the line on the script being like daenerys uh burns down the shelter walks outside and all the people like praise her and he yeah. sort of, you know, say, says to the showrunners, okay, so like, how do you want this to look? And they just turn to him and like, I don't know, it's just, just your job. Um, yeah. And yeah. I guess you don't probably find that a lot with someone like Chris, because I imagine he's quite clear and already kind of has it visualized how he kind of imagines all those scenes and stuff in the script. Absolutely. And there is a, there is a big difference between a big, you know, feature film director like that and a, and a showrunner for instance yeah. you know showrunners really you know chris chris has all these things sort of in 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 figured out and in check um showrunners are tend to be much more script oriented and and really uh, you know a showrunner's job is to keep the story thread you know intact you know from one director to another director to another and um and some of them i guess are more visual than others um, I think probably someone like Vince Gilligan is one of the most impressive showrunners mm. of all time because he created this material. He kept the story in check and, and, and kept a consistency in Breaking Bad, you know, from one director to another and with every single actor and character mm. um, and had a terrific script, you know, in my opinion. But, but so on a feature film, a director really has to have that overall sort of vision and um and i would imagine the showrunner would have to go to the dp the production designer and sort of you know depend on their expertise um to sort of bring that forward and then the individual director of course to decide you know what what's an appropriate way to cover a scene and what they've sort of seen in their mind but you have to rely on that dp to to help you know realize it and visualize it mm um especially if it's in someone with more experience than you have yeah while we're in the um inception groove it'd be fun to talk mm -hmm. about um and then kind of related to what you were saying about if we can do it practically let's do it practically rather than vfx um yeah. the rotating corridor scene yeah it'd be yeah. nice to hear about how that came together whether that was always the intention to create this <laughs> enormous yeah. twisting piece of kit yeah. um yeah it should be good to hear, hear you about talk about that yeah, I, I mean, this this all begins in Chris's mind, you know, and and you know when he's writing his script, and um, and I come in a bit later than that, um, but uh, but I think that you know as he's writing, uh, once he completes it, he's talking pretty quickly with the the effects team, and in that case, it was Chris Corbold, who's um, out of England and had been working with us on you know um, all the Batman films prior to that and it also has this long background this long history of you know bond pictures 
um, and um, and has this incredible team uh, in England. Um, so I think that he probably had conversations early on with uh, Chris. Can this be done? You know, um, here's how I think it can be done. Whatever, and then they start to develop and with the production designer who was Guy Dias on that film, and um, and start to to bring it together. Then then it sort of comes to me, and I see it in the script. But Chris has already sort of developed the methodology there, and then I have to figure out my end of it. You know, which is the lighting and the camera. And in, in that case, that was, you know, had its own challenges. There's <laughs> a, a set that's rotating 360 degrees, how to keep power to the set for the lights. You know, is the camera going to be fixed to the set or is the camera going to be, you know, fixed in its own space with the set rotating around it? Um, and that's something that there was, we had discussions of. So each, you know, when, when there's a challenge like that, uh, as a filmmaker, you 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 have to just bite off a little piece at a time. And, and you know, I don't know what Chris's process is, prior to my, you know, conversations with him. But, you know, I know from my experience that you just take a little piece of it at a time and, and it starts mm. to grow and then you realize you've got sort of a handle on how this is going to be achieved. Mm. Did you get to test it a lot? Were you able to, you know, try the camera on the on the set and try it in different places and see what worked? Not necessarily with the camera. They did a lot of testing for safety, you know, to make mm. sure. And they did a lot of rehearsals um, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt um, and the stunt actor um, on the on the sets, you know that that went on for weeks to make sure that you know it was safe and uh, and to practice um, what was going to be put on camera. Um, I'm sure we didn't get a lot of time to mess around with the camera. We had to figure it out and in advance and and on paper and then and then sort of bring in the elements and probably shot the next day. Like your news days. Yeah. Waiting around and then bam. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, Chris, Chris likes to work fast. There's no question about that. You're always, you always got to be ready to go. You got to have those sets kind of pre, pre, you know, rigged and pre lit and yeah. kind of ready to go. He did not want to wait around for, for lighting or camera. And, yeah, and I, so, I completely, you know, support that. It's, you know, you want to spend your time trying to perfect it with the actors, not waiting for technical aspects. Mm. Um, I, looking at your uh, the filmography here, it seems that uh, your next movie after Inception was was Moneyball. Yeah. Uh, so was that a bit like ah, oh, no more rotating corridors for a bit? Um, <laughs> Has its own challenges though, I'm not sure. Not necessarily. I think the only yeah. thing aside from the fact I was always looking for a good script to work on. You know, I was always looking for something that I I, I you know for I I was I was disciplined enough for for those years to never do a movie that i wasn't going to be proud of and and reading the material and finding it um and deciding what to do but i but i rarely did movies without chris nolan during that period you know from 1999 to 2012 or whatever it was um i really only did three movies that i can count you know without chris nolan and that was um a uh, film called Laurel Canyon with Lisa Cholodenko, mm. The Italian Job with F. Gary Gray, and then Moneyball with Bennett Miller. Yeah. And in all cases, I'm proud of all three of those films. And they all had, you know, interesting things. I met, you know, Christian Bale on, on Laurel Canyon. Mm. Um, and that was just a little low-budget picture and, you know, prior to the Batman films. Um, and Moneyball was one of those that I, I read the script, thought it was a fantastic script knew that Brad Pitt was attached and always wanted to work with Brad as well. And, you know, on the practical side of it, it was in between Chris's films. Chris was in the cutting room with Inception, so I knew it wouldn't uh, get in the way of me being able to do one of his pictures. 
Um, and, and I met with Bennett. I, I'd actually known Bennett socially prior to that. Um, and I also had great respect for him as a filmmaker and, um, and still do. He, he's really, really done some great films, a small body work, and, but every, every single one of them is great. And so it, it, it and, and then really on the practical side of it, because you asked if I was burned out on effects and everything else, on the practical side of it, it was all filming in L.A., and, you know, I have three children and at that time two were in high school and one was young and, and I'd spent an awful lot of time on the road. So the prospect of doing a, a movie shot all in L.A., you know, where the very studio tempting. Was, yeah, <laughs> studios half an hour from my home. So oh, actually returning to your own bed at the end of the day shoot. <laughs> it was wonderful. And being with my family and being trying to, you know, yeah. be around there for everybody. Um, so that was a really big plus at that time. Mm. Um, and I ended up really being proud of that film as well. You know, I think Bennett cut together, you know, the film in an extraordinary yeah. way and it ended up being a really satisfying film. And, and I pop in, you know, every once in a while it pops up on cable, you know, and I, I see a, a little clip of it and I'm very proud of my work in it as well. It's a great film. I love, yeah, I think I, so yeah, too. Really, I really like Moneyball. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I think Brad's incredible in it. Mm, you mentioned, yeah, like working with Brad on on a set. Mm -hmm. What is your interaction with the actors, if any, really, or is it pretty separate? Yeah, you know, you do have a lot of interaction with the actors, and you know, you're you're the the director's really, you know, you're the director's right hand man creatively on the set. You know, he's got his first yeah. AD there, and the production designers kind of done their work at that point, um, and and the actors are his collaborators. But you're you're kind of the person right next to him. And you're deciding together how to shoot it, and uh, and you're deciding alone how to light it, um, and so you're you're interacting with the actors, and and uh, and you know you need them, they need you in terms of of the best way to to make something look and the best way to photograph it, and you know I learned very early on, particularly with Chris, to not get in the way of actors and and really know that that. As far as I'm concerned, I, I, I don't like to tax. We, we can. We can ask actors to stand in a, a particular place for light, whether they do it or not. Depends on the actor. Um, and, and you know, but, but my school's always been a little more let them do their thing, and it's up to me to capture it in the best way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're all working together on a close set for 12 hours a day for – you know, in the case of that film, I guess sixty days or whatever else. So you you, you have a close interaction, and you and you you can you can contribute to their work, and they can contribute to your work. So um, so I had a great working relationship with not only Bennett but with um, with Brad and uh, Jonah Hill as well, um, mm. and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and and you know it's a great collaboration. And when it's working well like that, you know, I I've, I have to say I very rarely have. I've had a situation with actors on the set where you're dealing with somebody who's difficult or who yeah. makes your life tough as a, as a cinematographer, you know, it's an easier interaction than directing, you know? Yeah. You can have an uncomplicated relationship because you are somewhat, so you could just, it can be it more is. jovial. It is yeah. as, as a, a DP actor relationship is an uncomplicated relationship and it's, and it's one that generally is of mutual respect. Yeah. Mm. Well, just before we started recording, you said that uh, Hans Zimmer gave you a uh, a guitar. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's nice. It sounds sounds to me like uh, a lot of you know uh, for people who don't know Hans Zimmer's uh, amazing composer. Um, so yeah, it sounds like you you guys are all a nice team, and you must build up a nice uh, relationship with people, especially when you work with them multiple times. 
Yeah, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting relationship I had with Hans because we we never worked directly together because my mm. my part of the process comes months and months before his involvement. Um, but we did all these films together and got to know each other. You know, we probably didn't we hard, hardly knew each other by the end of Batman Begins and probably only met. Uh, you know, around awards season. That's when you sort of, you know, that's that's actually how I got to know Hans was, you know, around awards season. We're all going to parties and awards ceremonies and, you know, part of, you know, the studio's, you know, promotional campaign. And and so really got to know Hans that way. And he's an incredible talent and, and, uh, and artist. And, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, he said to me at one point, he said, you know, we're silent collaborators like we never have any interaction but our our work you know comes together and, and that's obviously chris's brilliance and in, in putting it together but there's a there's an incredible symbiotic relationship between the images and the music and at times really if you look at the screen it's just me and hands you know <laughs> it's it's an aerial shot of of something and it's just music and, and images and, and yes there's a director guiding that but it's really my camera and it's his you know, uh, music and, and, and mix. So, so it's, it's really is kind of a, a fascinating relationship between a composer and a cinematographer because mm. we have absolutely no direct involvement yeah. with each other. It's really the director guiding all that. Um, but we're collaborators. It's kind of like a woodwind section of an orchestra and a string section, but if they just never actually really were in the same, in the same room, but they're all it's, part of the same it's symphony. Perfect. It's a perfect comparison because they, <laughs> yeah. and they're guided together by the conductor, you know, they're held together and guided by the conductor. Mm. So, yeah. um, so yeah, so we became, you know, we became close in those, in those times. And, and, uh, and yeah, he was kind enough on my 50th birthday, as I said, to give me this beautiful James Trussart guitar, which is, you know, basically a Telecaster that's made out of metal and kind of yeah. a resonating guitar. And it's really a beautiful instrument. I think this is a quite a granular question, but I think people will be interested in it. Um, mm -hmm. When you're sitting down with Chris Nolan to, you know, do a shot list for a, a given film, do you, what's the process? Do you guys go and get lunch? Do you grab a coffee? Are you at one of your houses? Like, what, what, how does it go about and how long do you spend before you think, right, we're banging our heads against the wall, we should pause for today and pick this up in a new scene? I'd be kind of interested to hear how that process goes down. Well, that process, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it in, in my relationship, particularly with Chris, because he, he did so much of this on his own. I, I really only got into shot listing with Chris on the first film, on Memento. After that, he really sort of you know, he, he was a quick study at that time and he really, you know, did his own thing and, and we collaborated in a, in a very different way. Um, but it's funny, I remember going all the way back to the earliest uh, stages of my career, which is like the early 90s and doing the first movie I ever did as a cinematographer, which is a, a horror movie for Roger Corman. Um, those were, that was an 18 day shooting schedule. And so, you know, for that mm. first film. So you really had to have your shit together. You were cramming mm. as much into a 12 hour day as you possibly could. So in those days, I remember sitting with the director really closely and shot listing every single shot, then doing a, a sketch of the location or the, the set that was being built, putting X's on the ground where the actors were going to go, putting, you know, uh, a mark for where the camera was going to go and mapping everything out. So, and then of course it might not work when you get there, you know, um, Chris's <laughs> yeah. methodology was very different. Chris, Chris was much more, you know, uh, spontaneous and organic, which is, you know, you get to the set, rehearse with the actors, then, the then you place the camera, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
and and I would have to have lighting sort of roughed in, have a clear idea of where I was going to go prior to that. But it was it was much more of a you know spontaneous thing. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of a trend we've probably noticed across the the podcast is that some of these really incredible uh, directors and, and visual artists, really, you you imagined it all to be very pre-planned, but actually, a hell of a lot of it is quite spontaneous. Yeah, I think, and, and I think there's, you know, if you look at historically, if you look at all these, uh, you know, different directors, and again, you know, my beginning, my humble beginnings, you know, in dramatic materials with Robert Altman, um, and that was an incredibly spontaneous camera. You know, he had the camera on a jib arm all the time or handheld, and basically, you know, the actors would rehearse, we'd kind of figure out where the camera should be at that given time, and we'd roll. Um there are other directors who obviously, you know, go by that Hitchcock methodology where every single shot is, you know, carefully mapped out, the, the storyboarded, laid out, um, and it's really up to the actors to, you know, to do that. And and it must be interesting for an actor to work with, you know, uh, directors with different methodologies and different styles. And one of the things that I think was really memorable going back to the prestige as when we were shooting uh, handheld and Chris had an idea to shoot this um, wonderful dialogue scene with multiple actors. And it was pretty much everybody in the movie in that one scene. And it's Michael Caine, Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, Hugh Jackman in this, in this big moving master. And we wanted to shoot the whole thing handheld. Chris loved the idea of having no restrictions of the camera so I could point at any direction I wanted to. So I had to light the set. So it was, you know, we were able to go 360. Um, and then, you know, in conversations we decided, let's just, just, let's follow the action. Just, you know, completely documentary style, just, you know, uh, go wherever you want with the camera. And so um, to me, you know, to, uh, to have the, the freedom and flexibility to kind of follow the conversation from within was really fun and liberating. And, um, mm. and so we got into it and we're shooting this master. And, and what happens in a, in a big moving master like that is often is you fail the first three or four times. The camera's not in the right place. You don't catch a line. You get frustrated because you can't catch the line like three takes in a row. And then all of a sudden it just happens and it's magic and you have it and you're like, oh my God, we were in the right place at the right time. And because you're doing so such a, a loose style to it. But I, I remember filming the, one of these scenes and, and probably <laughs> the second take or so, Michael Caine was just like, um, where, I don't even know where you're going to be. I don't even know where the, the camera's going to be at any given moment here. And he's so conditioned to the Hollywood style of, of, shots being set up and okay, this is your close up, and you know, the, we've done the master. Now we're going to do your close up. Then we'll do their close up. But this was a complete free form camera style. And, uh, and Michael was sort of, I don't think he was genuinely frustrated, but he was sort of like, what the hell is going on here? And, and he said, I don't even know where the camera's going to be in any given moment. And Chris goes, exactly. <laughs> and, and he goes oh okay <laughs> and uh, and we you know and we continued on but that that was sort of the magic of it and someone like michael's completely open to a style of filmmaking he might not have experienced before or he probably had you know in the 70s or something um but it was it was really sort of fun and then you yeah. know everybody accepts it and and the camera has this fantastic freedom and flexibility to just 
go where it needs to go. Camera finds its own way, you know? Mm. That's what we like about um, Chivo, you know, that he does a lot of that as well. Just kind of finding where the, where, what's interesting. Oh, it's good that you managed to, uh, yeah, fluster Michael Caine. That's uh, someone with such a story. <laughs> Wonderful. He was such a, such a lovely guy to work with. So, yeah. Such a wonderful person. Well, speaking of uh, amazing performances, um, when you came to work on The Dark Knight, did you, were you really aware what an incredible performance you were about to see from Heath Ledger? Obviously, you must have known that he was doing a lot of preparation, but I don't know if you'd seen many rehearsals or, you know, when you when the cameras rolled, was it like, holy shit, this is a this is a fully formed character we've got in front of ourselves here? I think so. I mean, I'd had that feeling before with with certain, you know, the, I, years before, you know, in doing Insomnia with Chris, I had that vibe when Al Pacino uh, did a couple of things that you go, oh my god, and I, I kind of had a pinch me moment in that because it was my mm. my first time with a big movie star like that and, and watching Pacino and I was operating the camera and he was only a few feet in front of me and, and, you know, did an incredible performance. And I just, you know, shut off the camera and I was like, Oh shit, man, you know, this is, this is it. And, <laughs> and, and so I think you get that when, when you're seeing an incredible performance, you know, unfold in front of you. And, and certainly that was it with Heath. And I think, I think that kitchen scene that where he's basically introduced is, is uh is really uh the one where you know uh i can't speak for anybody else but i was like wow it's <laughs> it's some incredible stuff and and i just thought it to me it felt very original too it just felt mm. fresh and i think that's that's what occurred to me you know um mm. rather than it being some kind of you know extraordinary performance that i'd never kind of experienced before i think i think it just felt fresh like he you know, he's a great artist and, and his interpretation was, was something really cool. Yeah, I think going into The Dark Knight, you know, like I didn't have a huge amount of expectations. Obviously, I've been following Chris's career and was excited for that reason. But, you know, I'm not a big comic book guy. So I was, right. you know, Same. it was like, okay, I'll give this a watch. I didn't know. I had been following Heath Ledger that closely until that point. And then this mm. comes on the screen. It really just does. It does feel so fresh and different from anything yeah. before, especially in that genre as well, like massively. Yeah. Yeah, no, his his take on it was was really original. I think they had a great collaboration. That obviously, there's no movie history. Yeah, well, is it? Am I right in saying that he obviously he tragically passed? Is it during post production on that film? Yeah, it was. I think it was in January. It was during post production. Yeah, it was prior to the release of the film for sure. Yeah, that must have been hard. I think I read that Hans Zimmer was. He was saying that you know he thought about maybe even scrapping the work he'd done on the score and trying to write something different. He ultimately decided to keep what he'd done, but it must have been mm. a, just a really strange post when you've got to deal with that as well. Absolutely. I Yeah, and I don't know anything about that, but but I do, yeah, it was, it was a strange post and it was a very, you know, strange premiere as well. The premiere in New York was a very, was a, a very emotional event with Heath's family mm. there. And yeah, yeah, it was mm. sad. Yeah. Well, the one... Um, movie that I think you then did have to duck out for when your your partnership was interstellar because I understand you went off to make your directorial debut right with transcendent yeah I did and I didn't necessarily duck out for the film I basically decided that I wanted to direct and and went to Chris and told him and and you know he, he understood and and was was cool about it and we um, um, but I, I think I think it was understood that there was no going back you know once, once you leave and he, he found, you know, a fantastic DP and that's who he's been working with, you know, since. So, um, and again, he's a very loyal 
man. And, and Hoyta Van Hoytema is his, you know, current DP and he's doing incredible work. Um, but I knew at the time that if I was going to, uh, you know, go to a director and say, well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to, you know, uh, we're not going to work together because I'm going to direct something that, you know, there was probably no going back. Um, hmm. How did you find, how was the experience for you? Um, you know, a bit of a baptism of fire. You obviously, it was, did it, yeah, did it, it feel was, like your, your, yeah, your role had, you were, you were busier or less busier in a way when you were directing and you were working with the actors as much as you were working oh with God, the you're DP? Much busier. <laughs> you're much busier. It's much more responsibility. It's much more, you know, much more to take on. It's a, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge responsibility. You know, it's a monster you're, you're dealing with. And I actually enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed every single bit of the process until the film was released. <laughs> and, then, and then I just got this shit kicked out of me. So <laughs> that was difficult. But yeah, that must've been difficult to, uh, otherwise great, you know, great memories, you know, the process and, uh, and every other part of it until then, you know? Yeah. And you get your ass handed to you by, you know, critics and audiences. And I kind of, and, and, and even that didn't bother me so much. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a painful experience, but I, I knew that I knew that it was legit. You know, the, the kind of shit that I was taking, they get a little personal sometimes, but, um, well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I sort of somewhat left criticism behind me because after a while, I think, especially after I made a film myself and you really realize the amount of effort and brain power and resources and everything that's gone into it yeah, for you to just casually wander into a screening room <laughs> and then be like, Ah, oh, that was right. kind of crap, wasn't it? Right. It's just like, what? Who the fuck are you to say that? Like, you. <laughs> I mean, but you know, in the reality is, you know, and critics have uh, an incredibly important role. Um, and the reality is, like, if you make a good film, generally people will it will be appreciated and it'll be accepted. And if you don't make a great film, you know then you have to be able to accept the shit that you're going to get. As a critic, though, it's really interesting. If you look, I think, wasn't Peter Bogdanovich a, a critic before he became so, yeah. director? So, right, you got, yeah. so, you know, you have to you have to think like, oh, shit, man, you better be careful to be <laughs> the people that you gave bad reviews to. And now you're jumping into that chair and, you know, mm -hmm. that that's a ballsy thing to do. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but, yeah, it's, I, I think that, I don't think there's ever been a an incredible. I, I guess there are probably a couple of examples, but I don't think there's ever been an incredibly fantastic film that really was went unnoticed. You know, um, yeah. Except in this day and age, when it's really hard to get a film seen. Period. Oh God, yeah. You know, it's hard. It's hard to make films. Period. Mm. Now you, you've got a, you're in a, in an avalanche of content. You've got to try and get fight through that just to get to people's eyeballs, even if you've made something. Absolutely. Great, Absolutely. Tough. Yeah. And, and competing, you know, forget about the big screen. You're competing with all this other content on the streaming networks and wondering, yeah, if it's going to get seen or made, you know. you got to persuade people out of a YouTube rabbit hole to actually watch your film instead, which is right. hard in itself. <laughs> hey, it is, yeah, it is. Yeah, when they're used to, yeah. you know, 90-second content. <laughs> this is why I'm so happy being a photographer. <laughs> being a photographer is really fun it's really good and fun I, my problem with being with still photography is i have to feel inspired and much like playing the guitar i can go months and months and months without feeling inspired you know when i'm sort of hired and paid to get on a set then then it kind of forces me to find something and then i'll kind of engage and you know mm. uh, you know and like i'm mostly doing tv commercials now 
And and so once everything kicks into motion, then it's a lot easier for me to engage and to to, uh, to do something, you know, interesting. Mm. What about you mentioned TV commercials? What about TV mm. in general? Is that something you're interested in doing? It's obviously a lot of interesting stuff going on there now. Yeah, I, I did a couple of things. Um, you know, uh, uh, I did I did a pi- two pilots, one for Netflix and one for Amazon, both both uh, of which were. Uh, comedies. Um, and I had, a, I had a great time doing them. Um, and I just didn't, I haven't really pursued them that much since then. There's, there's so many other things going on in my life and I got really sort of comfortable doing these TV commercials now. And I'm, I'm certain I'll do, you know, something, uh, something else. Um, but I've been trying to, you know, develop ideas and, mm. and come up with, you know, things I want to do in the, in the interim sort of living life a little bit and, you know, um, up until recently, you know, staying very busy doing television commercials. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I guess after, you know, the amount of traveling, well, actually, I don't know if television yeah, commercials means less traveling than than doing the big it's feature films, but. On and off, you certainly have the choice, you know, you certainly have the choice. And there is an awful lot of work that was being done in, in LA. Um, uh, but yeah, that that was definitely a part of it too. Mm. Not wanting to, to, to leave in my, you know, two of my children are adults now anyway. So, and have moved to different cities. So, you know, the family part of it is not as, as critical anymore. Um, but, uh, but certainly getting sick of travel, mm. uh, you know. <laughs> Well, it's, it's good that it. you've it's good that you found time to live life because you know you've, yeah. you've been so successful in your field that you could just be doing back to back shoots, you know, three hundred sixty five days a year. So it's good to mm-hmm. actually remember that you need to not be doing that yeah. some time enjoying yourself. Yeah, it, it's true. And 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 if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where you can you have choice in whatever you're doing, whether you know whether in, in my case it's I'm I'm only directing now. I shoot my own commercials, but I'm only directing. Um, but I have, I've had freedom of choice in, in what, you know, commercials I direct and, mm. you know, how, how much I want to work and how often I want to work, um, until this bizarre COVID era mm. <laughs> yeah. changed everything, changed <laughs> yeah. the landscape. but, um, um, but you know, until that point, things were very consistent and normal and there are other things in my life I enjoy doing and that's, and that's important, you know, like shredding. I love shredding. I love shredding. I love, uh, I love planting. <laughs> I grow, I have, I love my garden, uh, you know, and I love my, my home, but yeah, yeah. Playing guitar is a big part of it. I like to leave a lot of time. <laughs> nice. Or going down the YouTube rabbit hole and watching music material. <laughs> it's not very productive, but certainly a hell of a lot of fun. Man, gardening <laughs> gardening comes for everyone, you know. It's like when you're a kid, you're like, the last thing I'm going to do when I grow up is spend my time gardening. And then you like get older and you're like, oh, actually, it's kind of cool. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know if your parents were, were, were this way, but my parents completely, you know, sucked me into it. I couldn't stand. My dad used to make me weed in his garden and I couldn't stand and I hated it and pushing around, around a wheelbarrow with compost in it and, you know, soil and doing all this stuff. And I couldn't stand it. And lo and behold, you know, here you are the doing next it. Day, you know, <laughs> I had a farm. I had uh, five years ago, I had a farm. <laughs> I was completely into it. And now I'm back in the city again. But my house is, you know, like, a, you know, I'm planting and working on things every day in this garden. And right now I've got, you know, I'm growing tomatoes and corn and all kinds of herbs and um what's know, next wally a uh, vineyard is that on the cards 
Vineyard would be cool. I, I, okay. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I do with the grapes because I don't drink alcohol, so I don't oh. know what I do with the <laughs> Maybe not then. <laughs> um, but yeah, grape maybe juice. <laughs> maybe it's a good idea to to make wine if you don't drink. You know, yeah, you don't get high on your own supply. Yeah, that's probably exactly, probably <laughs> exactly, exactly. So. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, we've taken up enough of your time for today, but yeah, thanks so much for jumping on and talking to us it's been really interesting yeah it's been a lot of fun, i think guys. yeah that's brilliant my pleasure yeah same here i've really enjoyed it and, great uh, yeah. yeah all right fellas all great right. chatting with you all Take right, care, you Thank you. cheers thanks for listening to candela you can keep up with future episodes and news on the show on our Instagram at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A Podcast. We will also be posting photography and cinematography that we like on there. You can also find us on YouTube and Vero.